Welcome to The Root of the Matter, brought to you by UPL. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you fresh ideas and insights about agriculture in North America. I'm your host, Ken Root. Today in the dead of winter, we're going to talk about soil testing. Now, we can start with it being very important every year to know what nutrients remain in the soil after harvest and the continuing increase in sophistication of sampling and analysis. But this year is coming together with a number of events that are unusual. First, fertilizer prices have spiked way up. Farmers are quite concerned, and it doesn't look like those prices are going to drop in the near future. Also, crop prices are high relative to normal years. There has been profitability, and there was hope for profitability in 2022 if input costs don't get out of hand. And the winter in the middle of the country points to being unusually cold before it finishes up this year. So let's sort all of this out with Dr. Brian Arnell, who is a precision soil fertility specialist at Oklahoma State University. Brian, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, Is Oklahoma's winter normal? Uh, Hopefully you won't get a blast like you got last February. Well, I have a hard time describing what normal is anymore, to be honest. Um, We are not normal. We have been slightly warmer than average uh, with uh, exceptional dry for uh, the majority of our wheat producing regions. Our eastern half of the state does have some decent moisture, but we're going on 80 to 115 days in the majority of our wheat belt without uh, significant moisture. I'm from Oklahoma. I grew up in the middle of the state. I recall a couple of times in April being able to go to wheat fields in the northern part of the state and still still see the drill rows and the crop only came up behind the terraces. So drought is not something that's unusual for you, but it's certainly unwelcome. Absolutely. What's your view of a of a really cold long winter looking north of you does it freeze up your nutrients freeze up your organic matter and let you uh, start with less insects if you have a cold hard winter is there any downside to that not necessarily as i look at it um i am my specialty is in nitrogen that's where i do a lot of my work and so i, I immediately start thinking about to how does the the weather impact the nitrogen and carbon cycle and so with the the hard cold winter that is shutting down the breakdown of organic matter or the release so depending on when you want it to be made available or not made available uh, it would at least prevent that organic matter from being broken down mineralized which means that organic nitrogen being converted to inorganic nitrogen in the form of ammonium and nitrate. Of course, when it's first converted, it's converted to ammonium, which is non-mobile, and then microbes act upon the ammonium and convert to nitrate. Uh, It takes warmth and moisture to get it from ammonium to nitrate also. So being a hard, cold winter, you not only slow down the mineralization, the breakdown of that organic matter, but also the nitrification process, which is turning the ammonium to nitrate a leachable form. So by all rights, it's helping. In our climate, where we don't necessarily freeze, you know, our hard winters are, are cold, but they aren't freezing to death. 
this dryness that we're going through right now, this drought in our deeper soils are likely pulling up our mobile nutrients from depth. Uh, so I fully expect in some of our ground going into summer crop, hoping we get a refill, a recharge of soil that will have higher nitrate and sulfate levels in our top foot or two. You've got uh, wheat growing on a vast uh, area in Oklahoma, Kansas, and that Southern Plains area, which was planted last fall, will harvest in May and further uh, into the summer. Uh, so you're kind of locked in right now on those crops. You've also got more and more spring planted crops in Oklahoma through the years. And of course, as you move north, that's pretty much all we have. In the look at the coming year, I want to get into soil testing in a moment. But right now, I would say farmers are most concerned about how much fertilizer they're going to put on because of the price of it. Is that a big issue in your part of the world of how costly this nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium is? Absolutely. Uh, 99% of the chatter uh, in the coffee shop and social media and phone calls is the price point of both of all inputs, you know, herbicide and fertilizer. So yeah, I'm having a lot of sometimes hard discussions with uh, farmers talking about, you know, they have limited budgets. So knowing what to spend the money on, knowing that just with the current market price of herbicides and fertilizers, um, where do they spend their money? Knowing that they need to do it to get the highest ROI. So not being um, quick to make judgments and trying to use the right data to make a good decision. Well, now, since you're a nitrogen specialist, uh, could you whisper to me any uh, cheap sources <laughs> of nitrogen you might know of? Uh, the soil reserve would be about the cheapest we have coming <laughs> off of this year. So that does lead into, um, I often don't, talk a lot about soil nitrogen analysis and that uh, just for the fact that it's a uh, quite mobile in the fact that you can take a sample in a few days uh, weather uh, environment that total nitrogen availability will change due to mineralization or immobilization but in this year going into uh, the current summer crops whether it's corn cotton uh, or sorghum uh, I'm really proposing that the farmers start looking at deep soil nitrogen tests, looking at what is at 12, 18, and 24 inches and, and putting that into their, their calculation because it's going to be uh, pretty cost effective to take some deep soil samples uh, when you think of nitrogen at a dollar a pound right now. Mm. Well, in uh, the Midwest, there were people this fall who I know, cut back the amount of anhydrous that they put on because of the price and the hope that they could make that up this next spring by putting a top dressing on. Do you think that is a, a practice that if you know where you are, you might be able to uh, cut your cost or at least make it to where your ROI might be as good as it would have been? Uh, for, for the majority, um, and, you know, the reference, you know, I'm in I'm Central Plains. I really try to get all of my farmers to move away from pre-plant. The pre-plant, even though uh, I don't blame them uh, this fall with anhydrous prices the way they were to go out or just timing. But if we can just look at mechanistically, look at the nitrogen, 
nitrogen need, nitrogen fertilizer need from the crop is built from basically three aspects, three, three points. We have three data points. We have how much is a crop needing, which is a yield component. So for every bushel produced, there's X pounds of nitrogen in that bushel that the crop needs. We have the soil reservoir, uh, which includes mineralization, the release, breakdown. It also includes the losses, so the negatives. Uh, and then finally, the efficiency of the fertilizer. Those three things go into account for how much fertilizer nitrogen do we actually need. And so if we look at a fall applied, or we won't do fall applied because we don't freeze here, but a, a pre-plant of even applied, we do not have any good data on any of those three aspects. We do not know what the yield's going to be, plus or minus full, a few bushel. We, uh, just putting the seed in the ground, we can't predict uh, what harvest is going to be plus or minus five bushel. We might be plus or minus 20 or 30. We have dry land fields here who have good yield averages, maybe 180 bushel yield average, but our range is 80 to 200. And so you, we have a lot of variance. So we don't know the yield going in pre-plant. We also don't know the environmental factors that are going to be influencing the soil nitrogen. So are we going to be in a high loss potential year? Are we going to have a year where mineralization is going to be quite rapid and quite good, where we have a heavy release of organic nitrogen? Or are we going to be in one of those years where we have low availability of mineralized nitrogen and our soil reserves are low? And then on the last aspect is that efficiency. And it goes back to the weather. So one of my challenges with pre-plant nitrogen is yield, soil nitrogen, and fertilizer efficiency is based heavily upon the weather, which we'll all admit that. And we have a very poor ability to predict weather out more than a couple days. And so I really focus a lot of my research and extension on transitioning into in-season management so that we can accumulate as much data as possible to, to refine those three numbers and do a better job of defining the right rate. Our guest is Dr. Brian Arnell, who's a precision soil fertility specialist, Oklahoma State University, Oklahoma native up in the northeastern part of the state where it rains occasionally, as opposed to the western part of the state where one of the rivers flows about every 20 years. But it is so nice to hear you talk so conversationally at such depth about um, soil testing, fertilization. And would you say that this year, like a balance sheet when a person's trying to operate a business and you've got very little more money than you've got need for, that the soil testing analysis, you're going to look at it a lot more closely if you're a farmer uh, than if you knew you had low prices for inputs and you had plenty of money in the bank? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I've said in the past, one reason we have a history of over applying nitrogen is because for history, nitrogen was cheap. So it was a lot easier to put on an extra 10 pounds than worry about losing a bushel. So the soil test this year is going to be of such great value, knowing that benchmark of where we're at, knowing are we going to lose any yield if we short our P or K application? Mm -hmm. But I'm also going to add 
that just as important to the soil test, it is ex extremely important for the farmers out there to know how their fertilizer recommendations are being created, what values go in, because so much of the, the corn belt, those listening on here, are using a form of replacement, meaning that you take the soil test and then add crop removal values. Those crop removal values are important in maintaining our soil test levels over long term, but they have zero economic value for that given season. So we should really be looking at how much replacement, I'm not saying back down to zero, but this, in my opinion, is not the year for 100% replacement of removal. We should be at very marginal levels of replacement. As far as the soil test goes itself and the way that it's taken, I wonder if we could touch on a little of the technology of that. And it's improved through the years. Part of it probably by the fact that people can run a little uh, four-wheelers all over their field and grab a sample mechanically. But are you finding that the soil testing most people are doing is representative of the soil they have? Oh, that's a that's a good one. Um I'm going, can I give you the agronomist answer? Um, I think the best answer is it depends. Um, <laughs> no, that's it, the economist answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's why the economist and agronomist have always gotten well quite together right. quite well. It's because of that. And the, the answer, I, I say that is depends because there are so many different versions of how to collect soil samples. Uh, even academics argue the value of grid. And there's reasons academics and scientists will sit at a table late at night and yell at each other for hours about the value <laughs> of such a thing as grid soil sampling is because there are inherent errors. And so it's how is that data used? I, I like to put it this way, Ken, is that any data above what we are going to have as of value, meaning that if a farmer was not going to soil sample, even a composite from a field has exceptional value. Moving from a composite to a, a zone, to a grid, to a high density grid, to a, a, a focus sampling, each of those have added value. But it's also important as applicators and agronomists and farmers to acknowledge the shortcomings of each and every method because they are all faulty uh, if looked at um, without rose-colored glasses, I can find fault in in all methods. Um, mm -hmm. But data, when understood, and the origin of the data is understood, can be used to great value. The two the two biggest ways that we vary in our recommendations come from sampling strategy and recommendation form. On the sampling strategy, that's a depth issue. How deep is that soil sample being collected and how many points are they collecting per sample? And then on the recommendation, it goes back to what uh, removal terms are they using and what correlation uh, recommendations are they using? And so that's where a lot of the variance comes in. You uh, said earlier this deep nitrogen might be a factor this year. Don't most people sample in the zero to six or nine inch uh, level? And does that give you, that gives you an average of whatever area you've been in, but should you go a little deeper and see what's down there if you have the kind of soil that can hold it that low? 
uh, my best example is a, a corn study I did last year in the High Plains up around uh, in the panhandle of Oklahoma. Uh, I picked up a linear on a research station that had been farmed out two years of corn and a year of sunflower without any fertilizer. And I put a, a really large end study on it. And I, I, I had the zero to six earlier collected and I had about 20 pounds in uh, the zero to six inch soil sample. So I thought it was a great opportunity uh, for about a 270 bushel yield goal uh, trial. Well, the day I planted, I decided to take some deep cores down to 18 inches and uh, I get the zero to six and zero to 18 back from day of planting and found that I had about 280 pounds of nitrogen from six to 18 inches. So mm -hmm. what we have to understand is that um, the nitrogen is not equally distributed each level down. Just because you, you have 20 in your top six doesn't mean you have 20 in your six to 12 and 20 in your 12 to 18. It can with the movement of soil moisture, a change in clay content, change in organic matter content, be at different positions in that, that, that layer profile. And so for me, you can be very shocked and surprised at the increase in uh, deep nitrate, especially if you've been fertilizing to yield goal and a full one to 1 1.2 pounds per bushel recommendation for, for a significant long period of time. You know, Brian, it is so interesting to listen to you and actually follow along with this, especially in my original Rocks and Clods class taught by Rapid Robert Reed at Oklahoma State University, <laughs> where that he just kind of made you glaze over mm. from time to time. He knew so much, but he moved through it so fast, I think was the issue there. What about variable, if you have the soil mm -hmm. sampling for grid, what about variable rate application of fertilizer on your fields? Can that yep. make you as much money as it costs you? It can. It absolutely can. We've done a lot of work with variable rate nitrogen, variable rate PNK, variable rate lime in this time. Uh, there's two, two things that need to happen for it to make money. One, the field needs to be heterogeneous, meaning the field needs to have variance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Oklahoma, there's, you go southwest or in the high plains and you can have one soil type that goes for a mile or so. Those, those are not the variable rate kind of fields. Mm -hmm. uh, but as we move into rolling, rolling prairies, as we move into soil type changes, Variable rate has great value, especially if done correctly. We got to look again at the nitrogen. So if I'm doing variable rate nitrogen and it's on a pre-plant term, then I want to look at organic matter. I want to look at historic yield. I want to look at some yield potential terms and adjust that and, and adjust the efficiency factor. So we do a lot of work with that. Long history of looking at uh, in-season application using sensors and satellites and, and, and drone technology. And that, that's really advancing. Um, in 2003, Oklahoma State was doing on-the-go variable rate fertilizer uh, every two-by-two two on a wheat field and every two-footer row on a corn field. So the technology's there and we can do it and we've proven it works. But it's the mindset to not just do the safe thing by applying a lot because it, it's more perceived risk. On the P and K, we've looked a lot. If you're not doing replacement levels on phosphorus and potassium, the economics didn't work out that well because the rates were lower. But once you start adding in removal, especially if you can look at three to five year yield averages and look at removal based upon yield and increased in fertilizer price, 
variable rate P and K really start uh, showing their value uh, when you get those scenarios. Dr. Brian Arnell is our guest. Uh, you can get some information of his online. Uh, he's an Oklahoma State University Precision Soil Fertility Specialist. And I've watched some of your YouTube pieces, four or five minutes in length, that really flesh a number of these areas out. It's a good refresher for anybody and for people who are wanting to move out to the leading edge of this. So I think you're there. Can you give us a caution this year on the people that may want to not add back the amount of phosphorus that they need for that crop? So my, my caution is this, is that going without is not the answer this year. Uh, it's, it's doubly bad if you go without and you do not have a soil sample to suggest you can go without. If you have soil test values that are above sufficiency or above optimum, so that would be uh, in the realms of the 30 to 40 ppm soil test phosphorus on the Olsen and Bray, uh, and the 100 to 150 on soil test potassium. If your soil test is at that point or above, then, then absolutely you can draw back. But if you are below that point, if you have points in your fields that are below sufficiency, uh, meaning you're going to lose yield without, we, we don't need to cut back to that point. So I go back to this is I don't mind cutting back on P and K if I have a soil test that, that justifies that I can cut back on P and K. In the uh, drought year that you are saying you're having, well, other people have those uh -huh. as well. And uh, just in general, if you come off a drought year where your output was uh -huh. down, does that mean you'll have more nutrients left in that soil? Or does it vary from NPK on how much would still be in uh -huh. there if you didn't harvest it? That's great. On the NPK, we have a lot less variance. Those are much more chemical or mineral. So uh, your phosphorus and your phosphorus might have more availability if you've had zero soil moisture because that soil moisture is critical in the chemical reaction to bind it. On the potassium, that's a little more tricky because it's mineral-based often. The tie-up of your potassium is in mineral. So now we have clay type. Are you in a shrink and swell clay or are you in a clay that doesn't shrink and swell? So you got more going on there, but that's not the greatest concern. The nitrogen is the tricky part about coming out of a, a, a drought. And often the interesting thing that we've seen, because we went through the 12, uh, 13 droughts, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that this, this is nothing compared to those years. This is just as a blip on the radar. But coming out of those years, we honestly had some very good summer crop yields because the dry periods, we'd have a short period of rain. And we're able to uh, collect residue. And that residue didn't break down uh, during the drought. Just it was so dry, the crop residue didn't break down. But during the short growing seasons that we did have with a little bit of rain, we had really good breakdown and I was able to grow 180 to 250 bushel sorghum and the same on corn with 40 or 50 pounds of nitrogen because all the residue had held and broke down at the perfect time in season. Wow. So you got some 250 bushel milo, is that mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. That's pretty darn rare. We have, with management and, and cropping seasons, our, our our milo can really hit it out of the park around here. We've gone, uh, in the last couple of years, the market's been good. 
um, you don't always catch the weather. Um, getting in the hundreds is, is uh, mid 150 to 180 is a lot more consistent than in the twos, but it is, it is possible now. Yeah. Um, as uh, we finish up here, uh, a broader question, hmm. you came out of college or you started college in 2000. So you've got 20 years of somewhat professional and then truly professional experience. And there's been a lot of no-till an increase in no-till during that time. What's your view of the the risk reward on no-till? In in Oklahoma, it is huge reward uh, for soil moisture conservation for most of our state. Uh, so if you take anything from the central to west, we have uh, my field. So my research, I don't manage small small research plots. I take over large blocks. So I run 20 to 50 acres on research stations and I manage that as a farm and it's all no-till. And I've taken some of our, our farms that will average 30 and 40 bushel wheat and 20 and 30 bushel soybeans and, and 80 bushel corn. And I'm now in the 80 and 100 bushel wheat. I'm in 60 and 90 bushel soybeans mm. and, and I'm much higher. It's because of my ability to hold soil moisture and provide a better rooting scenario. But we have challenges in our eastern and northeastern part of the state where we have heavier clays that really need to be broken open and dried so they can get the crop in. And so in that region, we use kind of a, a short till where we, we will work during certain seasons. But I'm also not that no till can't be worked. We just ran sweet plows through several of our no till fields last year to manage some tumble, tumble windmill grass and some other grasses that have been a challenge when it comes to herbicides and getting them killed. So I'm in the mindset that no-till when used can be quite beneficial, but I'm not going to sell everything. I'm, I'm very much opportunistic when it comes to my concept of management strategies. I'm going to take advantage of what I can when I can, but I'm going to be very capable of adapting something different. So if I need to run a sweet plow through my 12-year-old no-till field, I'm not opposed to that. If I'm looking at at the northern states up around the Great Lakes region where we have long-term no-till and we have significant nutrient stratification near the surface, I wouldn't be worried about an inversion tillage every once in a while to drop that back back down to depth and then go back to no-till for another period of time. So I'm not one way or the other. I think it can all be utilized um, in a system. So you're saying it's not sinful to plow. <laughs> that's, that, that's exactly what I was, <laughs> was saying. I, I used to say that, you know, that no-till was half science and half religion. Mm. Uh, one last thing here, if you'd like to comment yeah. on it, you talk about being a nitrogen uh, specialist, but carbon mm-hmm. in the future, the carbon footprint, the carbon that you take in, do you see, and I guess I'm talking politically as much Mm -hmm. as agronomically, do you see that farmers are going to have to start paying attention to that? I think it will benefit them to pay attention to that. Just looking at the political landscape, looking at industry, you know, I I get the opportunity to talk to the the Yars and the Nutrients and the OCPs and, and the Coke Industries folks upper level on a regular basis. And and the fact of the matter is, I don't see us getting away from this carbon. Now, I'm also going to caution that right now, I view the carbon market as a wild, wild west, and we don't know what's going to happen. 
if I get my crystal ball out and I, and I look at it, I, I see that we're going to start coming to center. Right now, the focus is on no-till cover crops and the building of carbon. Uh, but if we look at that as a academic and scientific look and a governmental regulation look or government involved, measuring carbon and maintaining carbon change is going to be a astronomically tough ask to to do that to monitor let's just call it monitoring so i'm i'm predicting that we're going to start seeing a little bit of a shift in seeing some of this carbon market start grabbing a little bit more focus on the nitrogen aspects because that nitrogen application then comes from you we take carbon to bake nitrogen then we have nitrous and there's a lot of stuff in the cycle and changing the nitrogen habits of a farmer or a farm or a operation is a lot easier to document than changing carbon. And so it's really easy to say that, okay, this farm has gone from 1.2 pounds of amphibushel bushel applied and harvested to one. That, that's, a, that's a black and white number. And so I do see that as we move forward, nitrogen is going to creep more into the carbon conversation but we're not, I don't see this going away in any near future. And there's going to be opportunity uh, for farmers to take advantage of some money in the marketplace. Uh, I am also worried that there might be some farmers that are taking advantage uh, in certain scenarios. Brian, most interesting to talk to you generally about soil testing, of which you know a great deal, but more than that, just getting into these specifics that we touched on. Uh, Dr. Brian Arnell is a precision soil fertility specialist at Oklahoma State University. And if you're one of those people out there that said nothing good ever came out of Oklahoma, we just (laughs) disproved that in this half hour. Brian, thank you for being with us. Take care and may you get some rain and may fertilizer prices go down. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to The Root of the Matter, sponsored by UPL. New episodes will be available every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.